0: Vernon Man with another tale from my days as a producer and correspondent with TV news in the seventies and eighties in the UK. No mobiles, no internet. It's 1983. Culture Club are top of the pops in the UK with Comma Chameleon," best-selling single of the year. Never mind, Boy George. I'm off to reggae country, Jamaica, with the Queen, no less. Not sure she's a Bob Marley fan. Anyway, as deputy senior foreign editor, I assigned myself to the trip. We're going to the Cayman Islands and Mexico as well. Some of my colleagues are a little peed off. But hey, what's rank four if you can't pull it every now and then? The Queen and Duke of Edinburgh are going on to the States and Canada too, but I couldn't wangle that. OK, I know I could have refreshed my producer skills in Beirut or Belfast, but hey, what would you have done given the chance?' The TV network says it'll take a half an hour programme on the trip, so it's with extreme reluctance we fly to Jamaica to do some pre-filming a full week before the royals have even packed their bags. We're booked in economy, but after much weighing of excess baggage and calculation comparisons and flashing our British Airways executive club cards, we're up to business. Our cameraman, who travelled constantly, are very good at checking chit-chat and invariably produce an upgrade. Sometimes in the line of duty, though, they have to take a checking girl out for a drink. The trouble with royal travel documentaries is that, to be honest, the dear souls rarely do anything that anybody else finds very interesting. Laying a wreath, planting a tree, touching hands with local dignitaries, the occasional bland speech, not exactly box office, is it? Hopefully the Duke of Edinburgh might say something controversial. So, after admiring the views from my five-star hotel, a brief early morning sunbathe on my balcony, and a sumptuous breakfast with the crew, memorable for its fresh tropical fruit, we head to downtown Kingston, the capital, to film a bit of local colour. Am I allowed to say that? Street scenes, atmosphere, ordinary people going about their daily lives. I've always hated that term, ordinary people. Makes us all sound so dull. The cabbie, a Rastafarian, what else?, Dreadlocks swaying in the warm breeze says, Be careful, boss. So we step gingerly from his car into the steaming, teeming street. Me, the cameraman, sound guy and our royal correspondent. He's an ex-Fleet Street reporter with a wonderful turn of phrase and a taste for the good things to be had in this world of ours. Life to him is a series of collectible experiences, endless Benson and hedges and large G&Ts at every opportunity. People stop and stare and smile as we set up the tripod and prepare to knock off some footage. Padding, really. A half hour is a lot of time to fill. I guess we're creating a travelogue with a bit of sparkle and glam provided by the Queen and Duke. I'm watching the cameraman logging the shots when I realise there's a hand in my trouser pocket. And it's not mine. The fingers on that hand are closed on my wallet. Oi! I shout, something like that, and I turn to face my attacker. He's a young lad, 15 maybe, and would you believe he's got a smile on his face as we lock eyes and each tug on the wallet like it's a game, winner takes all. I am slowly losing my grip, but then his mates and people in the street start shouting at him. He lets go and scampers off, still smiling. We film some street activity, fruit markets, stores and the like, the dazzling colours of the women's clothing, close-ups of kids' faces, blokes wobbling along on old bicycles. On a corner, leaning against the wall, is an elderly raster taking a pull on a massive, massive fat joint. It's got to be five, even six inches long, it's ridiculous. We watch as he sucks in the smoke for six seconds or more, holds it for another five or six seconds, try this at home, then very slowly, with a look of ecstasy in his half-closed eyes, he exhales. You could get high just watching him. If you're standing next to him, you'd be out of the game. We stroll on down the street. I feel a sharp, sudden pain in my back inside my shirt. God, it must be a wasp or something. Then I smell smoke and realise some buggers put a lighted dog end down my back. I struggle with the buttons on my shirt as a cigarette burns my skin. I rip off the shirt and shake the butt away to the laughter not just from the kids on the street who must have put it there, but from the crew as well. The man Rastafarians revere the most as a sort of god figure is Emperor Haile Selassie, late of Ethiopia. Now, I actually saw him in the 60s in a motorcade in Perth, West Australia. He was in a pink Cadillac and going to check out some thoroughbred horses. I should have got a selfie with him. Then I would have been treated like a mini-god, not had fags thrown down my shirt. We dine in style at a posh restaurant in the Blue Mountains and drink something blue and alcoholic. It's very nice and very strong. We have a day to get more pictures in the can before the Queen arrives, and we're sucked into the mundane royal schedule. We drive out of town, and in a while spot a line of men cutting sugar cane at the far side of a big field. Sugar is still a big deal here, but I'd imagined they would have used machines, not men, to harvest the stuff I thought slavery had been abolished. We have to get some shots of this, but when we get to within five metres of them, they shout menacingly when we point the camera and gesture rudely that we should stop filming and go away. OK, OK, I say, and attempt to calm them down and gain their trust as the cameraman continues filming. But then they get really peed off and start edging towards us, machetes in hand. We retreat at a fast walk. They walk faster, shouting abuse. We make it to the car, relieved, knackered, and very ready for a cold beer. I don't think they would have hurt us, but it isn't worth hanging around to find out. So we dutifully follow the Queen as she does all the things she usually does, accompanied by the Governor-General, wait for this, Sir Florizel Glasspole. Sir Florizel Glasspole, what a name. I assume he's a posh and privileged white guy, but he's actually Jamaican, and by all accounts a good bloke. After four days, Her Majesty and the Duke move on to the next colonial outpost, leaving old Sir Florizel with a new gong, the GCVO, the Knight Hand Cross of the Royal British Empire. This was February 1983. Had the Queen stayed on till May, she could have picked up a first pressing of Confrontation, the final studio album from Bob Marley and the Wailers. We head for the airport, where we have a chartered jet waiting, as you do, to take us to the Cayman Islands, the next royal port of call. Like on Lear jets, our equipment in several big silver boxes blocks the toilet. No matter, it's only an hour to Georgetown, less than 300 kilometres. The Caribbean sparkles below us in the sunlight, just like it does in the travel brochures. But when we land at Georgetown, the sparkle fades. The atmosphere is strained. Unlike Jamaica, immigration and customs officials are not awash with welcoming smiles. Their demeanour is more like the guys in the UK, grim-faced and officious. They open every single bag and suitcase and subject them to intricate searches, emptying everything onto tables. And then they watch with grim satisfaction as we struggle to repack it all. I hope they were easier on the Queen and Phil, who are arriving later in a VC-10. Phil will tell them where to get off. Well, he would if he had to handle his own bags. We sense that if we complain, it'll only make things worse. All becomes clear when we get to the hotel and join Fleet Street's finest in the bar. What's happened is that a British journalist, Simon Winchester, has written a piece published in one of the serious UK papers slagging off the islanders and the islands, describing them as smug and the islands as lacking in interest or culture. The Caymanians, or whatever they call themselves, are enraged. One of them writes a calypso called "Write About This Simon, referring to the economic state of the UK and its record unemployment figures. The song is hugely popular in Cayman. They play it in every restaurant we visit. The Royal Press back are not flavour of the month. We would have better fitted in in the time of Blackbeard the pirate who seemed to enjoy himself here in the 1700s, culture or not. Some believe there's still pirate treasure buried here. Meantime, they've turned the islands into an offshore tax haven and have the highest per capita incomes in the Caribbean. 400 banks and 10,000 companies are registered here. A tradition on royal tours is that the media are invited to a drinks reception hosted by the Queen and Prince Philip. That's the local media and us lot. We've already attended one in Jamaica, where the Duke asked me smilingly, do you live here? and lost interest when I said I was with the UK press back. We and the locals are briefed beforehand not to squeeze the royal hands and only to speak if spoken to. The Duke asks me again if I live here. He asks me again in Mexico. The local media are understandably overawed at being in the presence of royalty and are on their best behaviour. We're more relaxed, grabbing two glasses at a time from the passing trays. After a while, the Queen and Duke are quietly ushered away, no doubt with relief, which leaves us with the Cayman Islanders. They're in one corner of the room, we're in another. The atmosphere is chilly, not least because the Fleet Street reprobates have stockpiled the free booze, leaving the locals high and dry. The authorities in Cayman bought a Black Rolls Royce in Pittsburgh and shipped it out to ferry the royal visitors around. The governor nabbed it afterwards as his official car. We dutifully filmed the Queen opening the Queen's Highway linking the east end with the north side, all 9.3 kilometres of it. The whole of Grand Cayman's only 35 clicks long. The Duke, meanwhile, is on good form, bollocking officials at the world's only rare turtle breeding farm. They want to sell shells to the States. The Duke says that will encourage smugglers to pass off their shells from illegally killed turtles as kosher. We're not permitted to record world conversations, but the story gets a good run. I find time for a swim in the deliciously clean waters and see a lot of fish. There are a lot of birds too, but the islands have only one indigenous mammal, the agouti, a bit like a guinea pig with a longer tail. They eat guinea pigs in Peru, but I guess there aren't enough of them here. They do eat a fair number of conch, a large sea snail, which apparently doesn't have much of a taste on its own and can be a bit rubbery. Now, here's something not many people know. The conch, like all of us, eventually reaches maturity and stops growing. Except, that is, for its sexual organs, which continue to expand. I'll leave you with that thought as we pack up in the hotel and almost thankfully head off to the airport for the next leg of the trip, Mexico. The officers hired a jet, can't remember what exactly, but it isn't big enough to take all our gear. We just can't get it all in, as one conch might say to another. I relish the discomfort of the foreign desk assistant in London who has to get us a bigger jet. We'll leave the kid at the airport and go for a meal at a restaurant, the Calibo, which only opened a couple of days earlier, to mark the Queen's visit. The conch fritters did not entice me. Our new jet is indeed much bigger, and even with our gears stowed, we can use the bathroom facilities. The flight's about three or four hours long. The pilot, a Texan I think, has been around the block a bit and is easily persuaded to talk of his Central American drug cartel passengers. They were just ordinary-looking Latinos, he said of three men he picked up in Nicaragua with lots of baggage, flying them to Acapulco. The only reason I reckon they were drug guys was when they changed the flight plan at the last minute and maybe landed at a smaller airport. Then they tipped me 500 bucks and swore me to silence. We sip the vodka and tonics on offer and listen to more stories till he stops talking and concentrates on his controls. We're heading towards the mountains that surround Mexico City, Then the highest mega city in the world. Boy, she says, I gotta tell you, we may have a small problem. I sort of miscalculated a bit. Didn't properly factor in your load. It's going to be a tight thing getting over the hills. We top up the vodkas. Is he saying we might crash? Are you saying we might crash, I ask? I'm not saying gonna crash, but it's sort of a possibility. We're going to be scraping ass. We watch, silent and scared, as the mountains loom larger. We seem still to be rising, but will we get high enough? I decide to look out of the window, rather than at my impending demise. ''Come on, you mother!'' screams the pilot. ''Up, up!'' I close my eyes. Then, a loud exclamation of breath. ''Okay, okay, relax, boys, we're over, we're over!'' Phew. A couple of yards clearance, the skipper later divulged. ''My ass was in my mouth,'' he reveals, an image that doesn't bear close examination. We check into the hotel and decide, despite the vodka, that we need another drink.'' we find the silliest bar ever down a Mexican city side street, just along from the hotel. It's decked out with fading English hunting prints. The waitresses are all in English hunting colours. Bright red coats with black collars, black riding caps, leather boots up to their thighs, and not much between their thighs and their coats. Ah, yes, they all have a coiled whip strapped to their waists. Don't ask. There are no tables, just stools all along a bar running right around the room. By each stool, there's a holder designed for a yard of ale glass, you know, those trumpet-shaped things with a bulbous bottom. You can't buy a small G&T or a large one. You have to have a yard of it, with ice and lemon optional. You can only drink yards. So I have a yard of pina colada. One of the others has a yard of scotch. A yard, I'm told, is about 1.4 litres of liquid. Tell me about it. The glass is about 90 centimetres long, about a yard, three feet. A word of warning, when you get near the bottom of the glass and need to tilt the bulb to let the booze flow out, be aware the ice cubes are sliding fiendishly towards your teeth at a dentally damaging speed. Pull out just before they hit. Every now and then there's a sound of breaking glass. The Duke of Edinburgh might well have loved the place had he had a chance to visit it. Instead, he and the Queen are doing the usual stuff in Puerto Vallarta, a seaside tourist town, visiting an old people's residence, or as they call it here, a centre for the attention of the elderly, a youth centre and hosting a lunch for the Mexican president, Miguel de la Madrid, on the Royal Yacht Britannia. Unlike the tourists, they don't go to the house once owned and occupied by Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor while he was making the Night of the Iguana in the 60s. Nowadays it's a boutique hotel, still has the original pink heart-shaped bathtub I'm told. We should have stayed there. We take some shots of it for our documentary and driving out of town looking for more colour we spot a van bearing our hotel's name parked next to a wood. Laundry services, it says on the signs. Intrigued, we park up behind it and in a gully find three women washing clothes in the stream below including the shirts I left on the door this morning in a laundry bag. We film beach scenes, a mariachi band, I have a go at paragliding, whereby I'm fitted with a harness, hang on to a canopy, then run towards the beach at the same time as the waiting speedboat starts to move and takes up the slack of the rope, jerking me up into the sky. I won't mention my landing. Meanwhile, it's the Queen's last day, and she's seen off by a spirited Mexican band, mostly in tune, marching mostly in step, past the Royal Yacht, observed by weary Queen and Duke, probably desperate for a farewell stiff drink in their private cabin. They wave, then go below as the band of the Royal Marines march in perfect unison up and down the deck, showing the Mexicans how it's done. They play Land of Hope and Glory as Britannia sails slowly away towards the sunset, leaving me with tears in my eyes, a ticket back to England and, unavoidably, my desk. Mrs Vernon Mann. Thanks for joining me in the Caribbean. Bye for now.